0: Welcome to the fourth episode of Season 4 of the Bagley-Wright Lecture Series on Poetry podcast. I'm Ellen Welker, coordinator for the series. Season 4 of the podcast features lectures written and delivered by Cedar Saigo during his time as a Bagley-Wright lecturer. Saigo's lectures plumb the particulars of influence, history, tone, and form to beget a singular autobiography of voice. Across these talks, Saigo explores his childhood on the Suquamish Reservation, his coming to poetry, and the dream of composition. He pays homage to a glittering constellation of postmodernist and revolutionary teachers, artists, and peers, and builds enduring and pointed questions of agency, interdependence, lineage, and transformation. Today we'll hear A Necessary Darkness Barbara Guest and the Open Chamber originally given April 24th, 2019, at the University of San Francisco. This talk begins with a recording of Guest herself.
1: Is part of the poet's spiritual life, of which the poem itself is a resume. A spirit or the vision of a poem arises from the contents of the poet's unconscious. Let us say the vision of a poem has above it that halo you see in religious paintings when an act of special beneficence is being enacted by one of the persons within the picture. That person is given a halo. The poem is our act of special beneficence and the poet is rewarded this halo. The poet is unaware of the halo. Just as in the paintings, the persons are unaware of the halo, but it's there as a reward for a particular unconscious state of eminence. I'm not speaking of a religious state of grace in regard to the poem. The poem, let us say, is its own religion. I'm using the word halo because you and I can see it in the painting, and this halo has a value to us. It reflects a state of mind or a condition which the mind has attained. The halo has detected the magnetic field in which the energy of a poem is being directed. I, I would like you to understand that I'm using the words spirit, vision, halo, because I wish to lift us upward, away from the desk of a projected poem, I want to emphasize that the poem needs to have a spiritual or metaphysical life if it's going to engage itself with reality.
2: I'm almost certain that I never met the poet Barbara Guest. I know her only through the ghosts and possibilities that cling to her writing. She has always been otherworldly to me. The recording is an excerpt from a talk delivered in 1992 that was eventually titled Poetry, The True Fiction. The occult sounding element of her poetics cannot be avoided. There is so much belief suspended behind the arc of her reading voice. When I finally found Barbara Guest's book of essays, Forces of Imagination, Writing on Writing, published in 2003, I was thrilled that the book seemed to contain nothing but these barricades of ever-shifting, godhead types of lines. And now I seem to remember the book in this permanently jumble and idealized way. I seem to have fashioned my own essential set of weaponry from her text, but almost unconsciously. Her thoughts prove useful beyond the usual surface of discourse. It was a highly particular form of poetic mind control that I fell under after reading and teaching this book in 2015. And even now, the text is never as I remember it. The following is a passage from an essay in the book titled Wounded Joy. The most important act of the poem is to reach further than the page so that we are aware of another aspect of the art. This will introduce us to its spiritual essence. This essence has no limits. What we are setting out to do is to delimit the work of art so that it appears to have no beginning and no end, so that it overruns the boundaries of the poem on the page. All the arts share the need for this delimiting. Coleridge said that the poem must be both obscure and clear. This is what we search for in our poem, this beautiful balance between the hidden and the open. What is this poem that appears to be opening within our hands? Mallarmé says that poetry is, quote, "'Nothing but the intensely musical and emotional state of the soul.'" Coleridge wrote that in his youth, he was trembling with imaginative power. Imagination is the absent flower of Mallarmé, a turbulent presence to be invoked. This turbulence that arises is resolved in the live performance of the poem. How does the poet negotiate a chasm or sudden grouping of hills, meaning their rise and our eventual coasting down? Guest addresses this with a further question. Do you ever notice as you write that no matter what, there is on the written page something that appears to be in back of everything that is said? A little ghost? leave this little echo to haunt the poem do not give it form but let it assume its own ghost-like shape it has the shape of your own soul as you write barbara guest is acknowledged as one of the greatest poets to have emerged from the first generation new york school the other valorized members being frank o'hara john ashbury kenneth coke and james schuyler Of course, she was the only woman to sometimes be included among this exclusive and so-called generation, and I believe outright that her work dates better than any one of them. It goes through a huge transformation in the late 1980s following her completion of her biography on HD and her eventual move from New York back to Berkeley. Here is her charming biographical note at the end of an anthology titled The Postmoderns. Barbara Guest was born in Wilmington, North Carolina in 1920. She grew up in California, attending UCLA and graduating from the University of California at Berkeley before moving to New York. I continue to live in New York City, and although my interest in painting has not diminished, I have been less concerned with the work of the 70s. The past several years I have been engaged on a biography of the poet H.D., perhaps the most difficult task with which I have presented myself. One could say her poetics are as passionate sounding as any poetry, so it feels imperative to read a classic Barbara Guest poem in my own voice at this point, if only as proof of the architecture she details throughout forces of imagination. Here is the title poem from the 1993 collection, Defensive Rapture. Defensive Rapture, Width of a cube spans defensive rapture, cube from blocks of liquid theme, phantom of lily stark in running rooms. Adoration of hut performs a clear function, elusive column extending dust, projective screen. the red object's pavilion. Deep layered in tradition, moonlight, folkloric, pleads the rakish, sooted idiom, supernatural diadem, Stilled grain of equinox, turbulence the domicile, host-robed arm-white, crackled motives. Sensitive timber with complex astral sign, open-tent hermetic toss of sand swan reeds, torrents of unevenness. Surround a lusted fabric, hut sequence modal, shy as verde grease, hollow force, massive intimacy. Slant fuse the wived mosaic, a chamber astrachan, amorous welding, the sober descant. Turns in the mind, bathes the rapture, bone a guardian, ploy indolent, lighted, strew of doubt. Commends internal habitude, bush the roof, day stare gliding, double measures. Qualms the weight of night, Medusa raft, clothed sky, radiant stroke the oars, skim cirrus. Evolve a fable husk, aged silkiness, the roan, planet moved like ears, beaded grip. Suppose the hooded grass, numb moat alum trench a solemn glaze, the sexual estuary floats an edge. As you can hear, this is the type of poem one has to stay a few paces ahead of as it threatens to collapse behind or upon you. It is a deluge, to be sure, but also mechanized. Its relentless measure of stitch and pastiche calls to mind a remark by the great Edwin Denby on meaning in poetry. Meaning is a peculiar thing in poetry, as peculiar as meaning in politics or loving. In writing poetry, a poet can hardly say that he knows what he means. In writing, he is more intimately Concerned with holding together a poem, and that is for him its meaning. It is the dissolution of her imagery that I find so addictive throughout Defensive Rapture. The images are not set to sequence with any promise of narrative, and that is the turbulence Guest so often emulates and seems to de- deem necessary within the weightless field of poetry. There are single periods at the end of each short stanza. It goes on in this manner, draped in porous metal and intending to squeeze us out of the room. Its charm is in the extremely literal title, Defensive Rapture, achieving the impossible through opposites. The title simply makes clear the aim of its style, like Gertrude Stein's immortal book, Useful Knowledge. The words are thrown down as boulders to fill an empty doorway. There is a sense that the poet is being pursued, intrigue, but without a plot. It's the cut of the language that holds us breathless. Not all of Guest's poems sound this way, and that is part of the fun of reading her books. They feel utopian in the sense that the poet, at this point, has an armory of styles to draw upon. The talks and essays contained in forces of imagination intone a still reflective surface in order to entice the reader, most likely a fellow poet, to dive straight through the mirror. I believe it is true, as Robert Duncan once stated, that as poets, we need permission for what we do. I cling to these talks and essays because they sound as though they are addressed to me personally. This is a bit from a piece entitled A Reason for Poetics. The conflict between a poet and the poem creates an atmosphere of mystery. When this mystery is penetrated, when the dark reaches of the poem succumb and shine with a clarity projected by the mental lamp of the reader, then an experience called illumination takes place. This is the most beautiful experience literature can present us with, and more precious for feeling extremely rare, arrived at through concentration through meditation of the poem, through those faculties we often associate with a religious experience, as indeed it is. The reader is converted to the poem. Poet and reader perform together on a high wire strung on a platform between their separated selves. Now an applause for the shared vigilance. Guest seems to be offering up her own shaded compositional space for us to enter into, as well as acknowledging the presence of her readers, upon whom she so depends. As if to remind us that the best direction is always indirect. She allows for any other younger poet to step into the outline she has already fashioned toward transformation. That's what the best writing about poetry attempts to do. Apart from the flattering sounds of these sentences flowing together, the symbols themselves make a music as simply imagery. It is good to remember that it is possible for poetry to play out effectively in silence. As a poet, you are endlessly asked to re-describe your process, which I find I now take more pleasure in doing. It's as if you are issuing periodic weather reports on your process, and this goes on your entire career as a writer. This is also a useful way to read forces of imagination. On one day, what is hidden seems clear, or vice versa. The element of poetry can often liberate prose syntax from drudgery and go veering off to hand the audience honest new forms, assignments, or just incisive, breathless, musical note-taking. Which is only to say that within the hands of a poet, the essay may unknowingly begin to take the form of an autobiography. Certain parts may get repeated, and eventually this overlapping becomes helpful. It has betrayed a wear pattern, a circular grain to the wood. And in order to try to give you a sense of being in the presence of the poet, I quote from Garrett Capel's essay from 2008, Barbara Guest in The Shadow of Surrealism. And 2008 was also the year she passed. She seemed like a person from a different era, which I suppose she was, given the 52 years that separated us in age. She was stamped, I think, with a sense of glamour, born of the expatriate-infused Hollywood of the early 1940s. The experiences she drew on were commensurately glamorous. She might tell you about staying in a chateau in Zurich, or attending an embassy party in Fez. Have you been to Fez? she would ask unconscious of how improbable such an adventure is to most of us. To me, she was la grande dame par excellence, queenly, her pres- her presence commanding, yet too courtly or ladylike to come across as a diva. This probably sounds like sexist terminology, but it's hard to convey the exact mixture in her personality between an old-fashioned sense of gender roles and an insistence on the equality of art, where gender determined nothing, especially mastery. Her conversation was very much like her poems, consisting of oblique observations and unpredictable leaps that were isolated from each other by periods of silence. She could be extremely difficult to follow. The majority of the talks, lectures, and discursive poetry that make up forces of imagination were written and delivered after completion of the biography Herself Defined, The Poet HD, and Her World, published in 1988. I mention this simply to say that perhaps it became easier for Guest to focus on her own poetics after continually recreating someone else's life, no longer having an overarching reason to be objective. In all, she published 20 volumes from 1989 to 2008, There had been an eight-year gap between volumes of poetry during the writing of her self-defined. Part two, and this starts with a quote by Arthur Rimbaud, The inventions of the unknown demand new forms. I often experience poetry in the same way as I do so-called experimental cinema. The films of Maya Deren, Stan Brakhage, and Kenneth Anger were never intent on filming a static scene but showcase the breakup and overlapping of imagery. The films were, of course, never as I remembered them either. The series of images were never meant to be fixed. In the work of Stan Brackage, the print itself is sometimes drawn on or scraped, torn, colored, painted, attempting to make new through literal, testing the literal strength and resilience of the medium, a strip of film. To give a sense of this solarized, increased cinematic effect in Barbara Guest, I will play a favorite recording dating from 1995, when she was a guest on line break with Charles Bernstein hosting, a <laughs> poem found in her book Fair Realism.
1: I think this, uh, this poem actually explains uh, the meaning of fair. Fair. An emphasis falls on reality. Cloud fields change into furniture. Furniture metamorphizes into fields. An emphasis falls on reality. It snowed toward morning, bark a barque the words stretch severely, silhouettes, they arrived in trenchant cut, the face of lilies. I was envious of fair realism. I desired sunrise to revise itself as apparition, majestic in evocativeness, two fountains traced nearby on a lawn. You recall treatments of being and nothingness, illuminations apt to appear from variable directions They are orderly as motors floating on the waterway. So silence is pictorial when silence is real. The wall is more real than shadow, or that letter composed of calligraphy. Each vowel replaces a wall, a costume taken from space donated by walls. These metaphors may be apprehended after they have brought their dogs and cats born on roads near willows. Willows are not real trees. They entangle us in looseness. The natural world spins in green. A column chosen from distance mounts into the sky while the font is classical. They will destroy the disturbed thought as it enters modernity and is rare. The necessary idealizing of you reality is part of a search, the journey where two figures embrace. This house was drawn for them. It looks like a real house. Perhaps they will move in today into ephemeral dusk and move out of that into night, selected night with trees, the darkened copies of all trees.
2: Here we see the transformative strategies of poetry at work, largely for having provided the cover of darkness as a backdrop. So the outlines of the silhouettes and imaginary apparitions are allowed their full presence. We are made to feel the weight of the fountains and other edges encroaching upon the scene. Illuminations orderly as motors, vowels replacing walls. This is an exquisitely rendered poet's panorama, but it almost sounds daily, like the strangeness of being at sea in language is overly familiar, familiar enough to comment upon. I find that the poets who allow the details of composition to curl quickly around the poems themselves seem to date well. These poets exist as aspirational models when we are within the staggering flight of composition ourselves. The necessary idealizing of you reality is part of the search, the journey where two figures embrace. I feel the assumed darkness is part of the idealization here Everything is outlined against darkness in this poem, except its borders. The couple that appear at the end feel the entirety of reality as a construct. Selective night with trees, the darkened copies of all trees. This is a startling description of landscape as it emerges in writing, or out from the darkness rather, as it is just the contours that provide sensation. I think her voice would sound almost unhinged if its pitch and tone were not so noble. Her grand and graven tone leads me back to a time when the most transformative and liberating texts on poetics were alive in actual correspondence, that of John Keats and later Arthur Rimbaud. Besides giving a poetry reading or sending someone flowers, the letter still seems the most human form of direct address. It assumes an immediate privacy, perfect for charting the aspects of a beautiful voyage. Sometimes the muse needs only an imagined audience of one. This may account for the haunted transcribed quality in forces of imagination. The pitch of her voice sounds very much like the golden vaulted air of belief in the letters of John Keats, written between 1817 until his death four years later at age 25. When I recently re-read them, I thought immediately of Guest and her ideal of composition as hinging on a sense of the otherworldly that the imagination creates worlds period certain passages from the letters of Keats cast such clear lines they are easily held in mind and so remembered february twenty seventh eighteen eighteen First, I think poetry should surprise by a fine excess and not by singularity. It should strike the reader as a working of his own highest thoughts and appear almost a remembrance. Second, its touches of beauty should never be halfway, thereby making the reader breathless instead of content. The rise, the progress, the setting of imagery should, like the sun, come natural to him, shine over him and set soberly, although in magnificence, leaving him in the luxury of twilight. But it is easier to think what poetry should be than to write it, and this leads me to another axiom, that if poetry comes not as naturally as the leaves to a tree, it had better not come at all. I love his wedding the skill of the poet to the natural change from day to twilight, the luxury of keeping something hidden or in the abstract. But it is easier to think what poetry should be than to write it. it. Sounds very much like a line plucked from one of Guest's essays. Of course, we also have Keats' infamous take on negative capability, That is when a man is capable of being in uncertainties, mysteries, doubts, without any irritable reaching after fact or reason. Keats also wrote a letter detailing the chamber of maiden thought, a space the poet enters for total enclosure, proof of a realm that exists for the duration of composition, and sometimes even bleeds over into the editing of a work. We no sooner get into the second chamber, which I shall call the chamber of maiden thought, than we become intoxicated with the light and the atmosphere. We see nothing but pleasant wonders and think of delaying there forever in delight. However, among the effects this breathing is father of is that tremendous one of sharpening one's vision into nature and the heart of man of convincing one's nerves that the world is full of misery and heartbreak, pain, sickness, and oppression, whereby this chamber of maiden thought becomes gradually darkened, and at the same time, on all sides of it, many doors are set open, but all dark, all leading to dark passages. We see not the balance of good and evil. We are in a mist. We are now in that state. We feel the burden of the mystery. In this letter, Keats makes mention of the chamber growing dark. The darkness sets the doors open, resulting in a mist that surrounds the poet's first steps. Keats seems to be narrating these chambers down to an alchemical science, not merely describing them, but leaving them enacted for poets of the future. This is from a letter written by Keats to his brother, George, and his sister-in-law, Georgiana, in the spring of 1819. I am, however, young, writing at random, straining at particles of light in the midst of a great darkness, without knowing the bearing of any one assertion, of any one opinion, yet may I not in this be free from sin? This is similar to the darkness fleshed out and, of course, personalized in forces of imagination. Guest's claims leave an edifice similar to Keats, more of an active portal than a ruin. The narration of their poetics read like testimony, a transcription of a report after being abducted. I suppose I am still talking about intrigue. The lectures of Jack Spicer would fit in nicely here. But I find even more rhyme among the so-called seer letters of Arthur Rimbaud, in particular his take on a systematic disorganization of the senses. The letters were written to the French poet, Paul Demeny in 1871, more than 50 years after Keats correspondence. This letter was sent from Charleville, France. Rimbaud was 19 at the time. I say you have to be a visionary, make yourself a visionary. A poet makes himself a visionary through a long, boundless, and systematized disorganization of all the senses. All forms of love, of suffering, of madness. He searches himself, he exhausts within himself all poisons, and preserves their quintessences. Unspeakable torment, where he will need the greatest faith, a superhuman devotion where he becomes, among all men, the great invalid, the great criminal, the great accursed, and the supreme scientist. For he attains the unknown, because he has cultivated his soul, already rich, more than anyone. He attains the unknown, and if demented, he finally loses the understanding of his visions. He will at least have seen them. So what if he is destroyed in the ecstatic flight through things unheard of, unnameable, Other horrible workers will come. They will begin at the horizons where the first one has fallen. Rimbaud is not seeking any sort of assimilation of these visions, but insisting that a poet must bear witness to them, that even after they evaporate, at least we have seen them. I assume that this letter is also speaking of the measure of poetry itself, that as an element, it is always moving slightly ahead of our reach. So much so that the poet is caught in a state of impressionism, a cleaving after, or again, Keats' statement, we are in a mist. Ultimately, Rambeau seems to be advocating for the release of the cultivated soul from its body in order to begin its dream of astral projection. The spirit is liberated and soaring through space. Some of my favorite writing on Rimbaud is that of the San Francisco poet, Kenneth Rexroth. This is taken from his wonderfully readable crash course of a volume, Classics Revisited. Here he discusses the seer letters, or the letters of a visionary, as he calls them. They are the most extreme statement of the prophetic, shamanistic, Vedic role of the poet in the literature of any language up to that date. They are not only aesthetic programs, they are apocalyptic visions and calls to action. Rambeau attacks with all the fury of the visionary who sees an an onrushing apocalypse that even his contemporaries refuse to notice. Judgment, and after the judgment, the fire. That's from A Season in Hell, that last line. This is from the same letter to Paul Demony. For I is another. If brass wakes as a bugle, it is not its fault at all. That is quite clear to me. I am a spectator at the flowering of my thought. I watch it. I listen to it. I draw a bow across a string. A symphony stirs in the depths or surges onto the stage. This mode of self-separation within the act reminds me of Guest's tactile approach to language. This claim of being a spectator at the flowering of his thought allows for the perfect distance Guest strikes between herself and the reader distance enough to begin to cast shadows. In an interview with Cynthia Hogue and Kathleen Frazier from 1999, Guest ruminates on the importance of keeping a studio apart from her home. I was fortunate in that I was able to rent an apartment away from my home as a writing studio, where I could really go inside. A friend rented it for me, and I think that the separation was crucial, that I was able to get away to write. Because I never wrote at home it looked out and over the East River it was nice and I had it for quite a while and I was able to write so much there I wrote the HD book there I was pretty worn out by that book I really was I just broke down the place that I had at the time had a little walk around it and I would walk out there on the terrace that terrace appears in your novel seeking air doesn't it yes That particular place made me want to write prose. I do think you have to get away. I think it's the real solution, the way a painter goes into the studio to work. Clearly, her studio stands as an intermediary space, wherein poetry is given the assignation of satellite reality rather than earthbound purgatory. It's the etching out of the place, finding the planet, then the foothold, then to open one's eyes or as Guest puts it, Andre Breton said, to imagine is to see. I feel that the grain of poetry is meant to be elusive. It must eventually take on different forms to survive. I try and keep it hovering and ready to invade. Guest herself would allow the element of poetry to splinter off into biography, art writing, and many collaborations with visual artists. I also think it's important for us to hear how she sometimes allows for statements on poetics within the poetry itself. Poetry can sometimes be more exact than an essay because it is bound inextricably to music, the rise and fall of which may lock a meeting into place with sudden passion or surprise. This poem is from her last collection, The Red Gaze, from 2005. Imagined Room. Do not forget the sky has other zones. Let it rest on the embankment. Close the eyes. Lay it in the little bed made of maple wood. Wash its sleeve in sky drops. Let there be no formal potions, a subject and a predicate made of glass. You have entered the narrow zone, your portrait etched in glass, becoming less and less until the future faces you like the magpie you hid, exchanging feathers for other feathers. In the tower, you flew without wings, speaking in other tongues to the imagined room. There is a greater accuracy here, because she allows her musings to become the paneled music box itself. What is at risk in cueing the formation of a room? To make clear its shimmering fragility, we can feel how much these living, breathing bodies can benefit from being discussed, or at least read aloud in several voices. Cultivation of that literal halo Guest had mentioned, that particular unconscious state of imminence. One of the re- reasons our poetics sometimes have to be revealed in deadly serious tones. The intimacy and accuracy are dependent on withstanding a ruthless wave of syntax, the element of collage is not always imposed after the fact, but as a mindset, we try and mirror as closely as we can for the reader, facing language and charting it, not thinking what is best for the sake of narrative. Sometimes as poets, we are sifting through ruins and letters and charting our findings piece by piece. They may be confused, bottlenecked, or explosive, but still recorded, in the order received. Thank you.
0: That was Cedar Saigo giving his talk, A Necessary Darkness, Barbara Guest and the Open Chamber. Saigo's book of collected Bagley Wright lectures, Guard the Mysteries, is forthcoming from Wave Books in June 2021 and is available for pre-order at wavepoetry.com, via bookshop.org, and at your local independent bookstore. The Bagley Wright Lecture Series is a non-profit that supports contemporary poets as they explore in depth their own thinking on poetry and poetics, and give a series of lectures resulting from these investigations. Lectures are delivered publicly in partnership with institutions and organizations nationwide. To have episodes delivered directly to your device as soon as they're available, subscribe now. Visit us at our website, bagleywrightlectures.org, for more information about these and other lectures by Joshua Beckman, Dorothy Alaski, Timothy Donnelly, Srikanth Reddy, Terence Hayes, Rachel Zucker, Cedar Saigo, Renee Gladman, Lisa Jarno, and Douglas Kearney as well as links to supplementary materials on each lecturer's archive page, including selected writings and a link to available books. This podcast was produced by me, Ellen Welker. Thank you to the University of San Francisco for hosting this event, and thank you for listening. Music is I Recall by Blue Dot Sessions from the Free Music Archive, CC by NC.